Amen. It's in the cross of Jesus Christ that we die to ourselves, but we find life. We find life that is given to us from the Lord. May the Lord make it so inside of all of our lives. If you would, uh, take your Bible and turn to the book of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to continue our study through this book, just section by section, verse by verse through it, believing that God's word is given to us, is inspired, infallible uh, for us to learn and to live by. Uh, we come to a section on the Lord's Supper. We're not going to take the Lord's Supper today, but it's, it, it is helpful for us as we look to it and understand what is God's call to us? What is God's call to us as we do participate in this month to month, week to week, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together? So 1 Corinthians 11, uh, you'll see we'll be looking at verses 17 through 34. If you would, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to, the, what shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you drink this bread and as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment about the other things. I will give directions when I come. This is God's word. May add his blessing to the reading of it. You may be seated. And would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come to this your, this, your word, this gift to us, your word which satisfies us and feeds us. As Jesus Christ himself said, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes out of your mouth. And so, God, we ask you that you would feed us in your word so that we may live, truly live, Father, spiritual lives that are directed by the cross and life that comes through him. 
Father, you also have shown us in the Lord's Supper that you sustain us in that. It is a a tangible word to your church. And we pray, Father, as we look at this passage, we'd understand that. We'd understand it so that as we come to worship, as we seek you in it, that we value it with the value that you give to it. Father, just help us to understand, uh, bring words to my mouth and understanding to our hearts. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, sometimes a lack of awareness can hurt us. It affects our relationships, and sometimes a lack of awareness hurts others, especially as we are interacting with them. This week, uh, we received news that, um, that Prince Philip, the royal consort of Queen Elizabeth, had died, and, and the British mourned that time over this last week. Uh, again, Prince Philip was uh, Queen Elizabeth's husband for 73 Long years, I mean, that's a, a long marriage to have the other 73 years and the longest, I trivia folks, the longest in British royal history. Um, but it was also a reminder to us as, as he passed away of the, of the sadness of this pandemic because, you know, pe- people couldn't go to this funeral. And uh, we even see pictures of her, of the Queen of Li- mourning by herself. But one of the things that Prince Philip was known for was some of the rude and cringeworthy statements that he would make. Now, I've said things, and maybe you've said things, which have made your kids cringe, right? Um, or that's made your spouse cringe. And there's like, oh, I wish you didn't say that. I wish you didn't say it in front of me. Well, he had this ability to make his whole country cringe as he, he said certain things. I was going to share some of them at this point. Um, once he was speaking to some residents of the Cayman Islands, and he said to them, aren't most of you descendants of pirates? He visited Australia in 2002, and he asked a, bunch, a group of indigenous Australians, do you still throw spears at each other? He met Nigeria's president, who was wearing the traditional African garb um, and welcoming in a formal way. He said, you look like you're ready for bed. And once in visiting North London, he asked a disabled man on a mobility scooter, he said, how many people have you knocked over today with that thing? So, you know, when, once people pass, those cringeworthy things may become endearing, um, especially when they're gone, anecdotes of, of a person who's fondly remembered. Uh, but we know that, that the things that we can say in our own lack of awareness uh, can have damaging consequences on the people around us. It affects us, it affects the people around us, and it can uh, affect the Church of Christ. And in our passage that we're looking at today, uh, we see how that was happening inside of the church. The Corinthians were doing their own thing. A bunch of them were doing their own thing. And a lot lot of people were being left in the dust and being treated really inconsiderately. Now, our passage today is obviously about the Lord's Supper, one of the, the two sacraments that the Lord Jesus Christ gave the church. He gave the church baptism, and he gave the church um, the Lord's Supper, uh, these um, sacraments that are given to be repeated um, until he comes again. We know that Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper the night before uh, he was crucified. We can read about it in all of the Gospels. Uh, but for Jesus, it was more than just a, a ritual or a tradition to do. It was really wrapped up with his heart. And we can see the, the, the affection that he put, even in Lord's Supper, with the way he treated the whole evening. 
Because before he would uh, institute the Lord's Supper, and we've read some of the, the wording of it already, but before he did that, we remember uh, from John chapter 13 what he did, that he gathered the disciples around them, and we read this in John 13, uh, verse 2, that during the supper, Jesus rose from the supper, he laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, tied it around his waist, then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Here you have this, this master is serving his followers. And then we can see what he says about it in verses 34 and 35 when he says, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. He loved his disciples by serving them and, and washing their feet here. He served and loved his disciples by giving his life for them. And he says, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so we see Jesus here isn't just doing some sort of ceremony, but he is actually caring for his disciples. And this, the supper is an expression of what Jesus did, but we also learn in it uh, why he did it. And so inside the, this, uh, for, for Jesus, this was the last supper. This was his last dinner before he was uh, crucified, his celebration of the Passover, uh, one where really he was the fulfillment of it as as he himself would be the Passover lamb who would be sacrificed for the sins of his people, but it also becomes the church's first Lord's Supper. Now the church in Corinth, as we get to our passage today, they'd moved away from Jesus' design here. They were not practicing it in the way that he intended. Now, they said that they were doing it in the way that Jesus had intended it, but the message they get in verse 20 is that what they were doing was so far removed from what Jesus had commissioned them to do that it was no longer the Lord's Supper anymore. We can see in verse 20, when we see this, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you take. I mean, they can call it what they want, but their behaviors are so contradictory to the nature of the supper that they were missing such a part of it that they couldn't even call it the Lord's Supper anymore. They were desecrating it. Now remember, 1 Corinthians is a letter. It was written by the Apostle Paul to the first century church uh, in, that was in the city of Corinth. They just started three years ago. And anytime you start something new, you know, you're going to go over uh, ups and downs and trials and, and blessings during that time. And, and it's not surprising as we read a book like 1 Corinthians that they'd have a number of trials that they're going through, a number of internal controversies and issues that they're, that, that they're working through. And we've seen that over the last nine months as we've been studying this together. It's normal to have problems. Um, we can get overwhelmed by the number of them that we might read in this book, uh, but we work through them. Now, in this passage, uh, we're focusing particularly on the Lord's Supper, and we see what happens, uh, especially if we jump down to verse 21, What's happening on that day is that some people uh, were eating at the Lord's Supper, but other people were going hungry. Verse 21, for eating the Lord, at this Lord's Supper, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. So you can see the excessiveness that they uh, were demonstrating at this time, that some were even drinking so much that they would become inebriated at this. It's, this. it's a picture that while they were at this worship service, they were focused on themselves. They were focused on their own needs. They were focused on their interests. Now, 
Uh, you might wonder, how did this happen? How would they possibly get drunk on that tiny little cup of, of, of juice? And how could they possibly starve when they give crackers to everybody in the, in the, in the place? Well, actually, maybe isn't everybody starving after you have one of those? Um, obviously, it's not about the food that's there. In the first century, uh, the, first, the, their, the church, the church at that time, would have added a meal together with the Lord's Supper. Uh, people think that you'd have the bread, which would be offered, and then they'd have a meal together, um, and then they would uh, take the cup at the end of the supper. And uh, so sort of the Lord's Supper was around this meal that they would have together. And we also remember they didn't have buildings like this where they would gather in, but they would be gathered in people's houses. Um, and Sunday wasn't what Sunday is today. And so most of them would be working, a lot of them would be working that day. And so they might be uh, coming in after work in order to come to these church services. A number of them don't have, have kitchens inside their houses. Uh, they may use grills outside. And, um, and so maybe they need to eat at the end of the day. Um, so what we can see is people are bringing food, people are bringing wine to come to eat. Um, it's not much of a potluck where people are sharing their meal, but it's more of a picnic where you have different families scattered eating their own food. Some would come early, some would come late. You can imagine inside of a home, some would be closer to the front of the action and others would be in the back. By the way, you know, when you're here, I mean, I sit in the front and I sit in the back and I'll just say, the front is better. This is my opinion. I mean, it's louder, it's, you can hear better, it's, you know, there's more energy that comes from the front, so kudos to all you who are in the front, but, you know, we do have two to three rows up here available if you ever want to come in there. Anyways, that's an aside. Um, but, you know, you have this setup that's here, and so, you know, because of these things, there's, like, the stratification that's going on, I mean, like a social stratification, and in verse 22, uh, he gives a verdict on it. He says, What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? And we can see what's going on. They're humiliating certain people in the church. There are those who feel ignored. They feel worthless. uh, They feel like they don't fit in. And they're hungry. And humiliation is an extremely strong emotion if you've ever felt it. If you feel humiliation, you don't want to go back to that place. And that's what they're experiencing. You can imagine that, that their lack of care for one another is affecting the ministry of the church, where they could grow. You might even see people leaving. They're not loving their neighbor as herself as they're commanded to do. But he, he says they're humiliating those who have nothing. But he also says this. He says they're despising the church of God. Recognizing that these ones who are here are brothers and sisters in Christ as they treat this one member of the body, that, that's the way they're treating the whole body. And they're despising those for whom Christ has died. They're despising the church of God and looking down on that. Now sadly, uh, the church may have been reflecting at this point a lot of the values of the Corinthian culture. Inside of Corinthian culture, they highly valued the wealthy. They really... Um, and I care about the, the, the poor, that the wealthy would keep a far distance away from those who, who, who were poor. And so as they come to the Lord's Supper, you know, you wonder if this Corinthian culture, which tended to despise the poor, was creeping its way into the ordinary practice of the church. They'd ignore their needs. They would uh, not demonstrate kindness towards them at this time. They didn't take their cues from Christ and what he had done in washing the disciples' feet, but they were taking their cues from the culture 
which would say to look down on the poor and those who are in need. Verse 18 talks about the divisions this cause. From the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you. You can imagine, so there would be divisions, like stratification of, of different people, and it would hurt uh, people inside the church, and it threatened its existence and growth. And so the Apostle Paul challenges them. We can see his challenge in verse 19. You know, will they reclaim the truth? Will they walk according to the true practice? He says, there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. And what we pray is, and is stand for the truth is that people say, no, brothers and sisters, we need to look at what Christ has commanded. We need to rise to the top and, and to do what's right in this situation, to bring God's people together. So it's a leadership test in which the leaders of the church will bubble up to the top in their faithfulness to Christ. They're going to show what genuine faith and genuine truth looks like. So today what we want to do is we want to look at what it means to rightly take the Lord's Supper for us as individuals and us as a church. Now, we don't celebrate the Lord's Supper as they did back then. We don't have this meal that is in, in the middle. We uh, focus on those, those, the, the sacramental parts of it, the giving of the bread and the giving of the cup. But that doesn't mean that we can't face some of the other difficulties that they did of, of not paying attention to the needs of others or, or being focused on ourselves inside of worship. You know, we can be absorbed with our own families or what it takes to get here, our own fellowship time, or on worship that we're not paying attention to the needs of the people around us. We can form cliques or small groups and fail to see how we're connected with one another and how much we need each other inside of the body of Christ. God has redeemed us to be a part of the family together, and the Lord's Supper is a provision for the church and it reminds us of the things that Christ has done. We eat together, we share together, we care together, and that's how we keep together. There's a value in those eating together as a family and strengthening your family. And that's what the Lord's Supper is, as we, as Lord Jesus Christ unites us and the Lord's Supper reminds us of that union. All right, so we're going to look at what's right, required to rightly celebrate the Lord's Supper. The first thing we see is we must have a right understanding. We must have a right understanding in verses 23 through 26. All right, so the first thing in addressing the problem is he goes right back to the source. What is it that Jesus instituted when he gave them this sacrament? And as he recalls Jesus' word, he's not just going through the, the, the wording, but he's also showing the motivation, the heart of Jesus inside of it. In verse 23, we see the Lord Jesus Christ instituted the Lord's Supper. He says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. The sacraments come from Jesus. They're things that he actually gave his disciples and said to do this. In Matthew chapter 28, he told his disciples, go and make disciples and baptize them. We see here, he said, do this in remembrance of me. These are things that came from Jesus about him that they were called to repeat. So it's not just a human idea. It's not just a, a humanly created religious ceremony. It is something that Jesus gave to the church and is something the church does in obedience to him. And so in verse 24, we see how Jesus gives himself in the Lord's Supper. Verse 23 goes on to say, the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread and then he says, he's, he broke it and he says he's giving his own body. He, he's really sharing, as he shares his bread, what he's saying is he's sharing this broken body with his people. Verse 24, when he'd given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
Now when he says this is my body, he is saying that the, the, that the bread represents him. It's like a picture. Maybe on your phone you have a picture of your husband, a picture of your wife, or a picture of your kid, and, and you go to work and you say, hey, this is my son. And the person who's looking at it doesn't ask, well, how'd you stuff him into your, into your phone? I don't get that. You know, we know that this is a representation of, of, of your little baby who's on your camera. It represents who he is. It, it shows what he looks like, maybe shows what he likes to do. Um, it shows how much you love him. All of those things. Because you can't capture a full person in a photo, though, but, you know, re- represents them. And in this way, when Jesus says, this is my body, he is saying that like a photograph, that this bread represents him. Inside of the supper, supper, Jesus is being represented. He's there inside the bread, and it shows his spiritual presence for his people as they take the Lord's Supper um, that day. As they eat the bread and they drink the cup, it reminds us that he is there with them. It should remind us as we come to the Lord's Supper of his special presence with us. What he says is this body had to be broken. Somebody had, he, he's, he, he's broken in the sense that, that he gave his body as a sacrifice to the Lord, that God poured out his wrath of sin upon Jesus Christ that he wouldn't be poured out upon his people. He had to become our nature, he had to become like us because it's us who'd sinned, it's us who'd broken God's law. And, and because of that, there was a penalty that needed to be paid. And in taking up our nature, he was able to be a fully acceptable sacrifice to God in that way. And he says, this is my body, which is broken for you. And as we take the Lord's Supper, we're reminded how he physically uh, suffered. And he physically died to give himself for us. Verse 25, he goes on to talk about the cup. It says in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. This cup signified the making of a covenant, signified fellowship, it signified friendship. Um, you know, covenant is a relationship that God establishes with us. It's, it's built upon a promise. And so what Jesus is saying to his disciples as he, as he gave it to them that, that last supper is he's saying, I'm giving you a new kind of relationship with God. One that's based on the promises of God. One that is based upon grace one that is not based upon what you do or the fulfillment of a law because Jesus has fulfilled it for us. It's a covenant that God uh, fulfills, that, that God makes with us, that God fulfills for us. He makes it on our behalf and he gives us the benefits. And see, he has to do it because we're not so good. We're not good. That's not what, uh, why he made this promise in this new relationship, but he is forgiving and he is good. Jeremiah 31 speaks of this new covenant hundreds of years before it came, speaking about what it would be like. Uh, first, in, in talking to the people of God in Jeremiah 31, you know, we see uh, some of the problems. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. You know, why do they need something new? Not like the covenant I made with our fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. All right, so what's this covenant like? He says, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel these days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and will remember 
their sin no more. So in this new covenant that God is making with his people, we know God. He shows us what his will is. He gives us a new heart. He puts his law within us, and he forgives his sin. He, for, he forgives our sin. And so when Jesus established the Lord's Supper, he, he reminded us of God's acceptance, of, of the change that takes place in us, and what it means to be part of, of God's family. Now, what was required for that covenant to be made? The shedding of blood. It took Jesus' blood to make that happen. A covenant, as we look through the Old Testament, would always be established by the shedding of some blood. One author has uh, said that a covenant is a bond that is made in blood, that's sovereignly administered. If you go through the, the covenants of the, of the Bible inside the Old Testament, we see that it was made in the death of something. We can see it with Adam, we see it with Noah, we see it with Abraham, we see it with Moses and, and, and the people of Israel. We keep going through them. and We see covenant promises are based upon the offering of a sacrifice. Exodus 24 is one example of it where, where the people of God are entering into a covenant relationship with God. And then we read this, that Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Just one of those covenants that required the death of something. Now in the new covenant that God is making with his people, it took the death of Jesus. That's the only way that sins can be forgiven. It's the only way that your, that your sins can be atoned for was through a sacrifice he made, the shedding of his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. We see this in Romans 5, 9, that it was his blood that paid for our sins. So since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, meaning that we've been made acceptable to God, that our sins have been forgiven, that, that we've been accepted as righteous, how did it happen again? By his blood. And if we've been forgiven by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. And so verse 26 tells us the Lord's Supper is a picture of what Jesus Christ has done. It's a picture of our faith. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, verse 26 says, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Don't we declare it? We declare it to one another as we eat together, maybe as we pass the plate together, as our elders come and distribute it together. We declare it to the world. This is our hope. This is our strength. This is what we want. We also reminded ourselves, aren't we? Like this is what will truly satisfy me. I cannot be satisfied unless I have a relationship with the God who has created and redeemed me. So the Lord's Supper is a picture of grace. So it shows us who he is. It fills us with him. It satisfies us. But it also calls us in the care of others. So as we participate in the Lord's Supper, we are tasting eternal life. Faith is like feeding on Christ. It's receiving him and his message by faith. The reminder that he humbled himself in his death to give us life. And if he gave himself for us, we don't need to be concerned with our status. We don't need to be uh, concerned about our station with our appearances. Don't, those don't become first and foremost. Christ becomes first and foremost in a relation with him. And then, then we can pay attention to those who have needs for those that we can care about around us. Because he cared for us when we were sinners. He cared for us when we had nothing. And ought we not to care for the people in our lives and around us? This is the giving heart of Christ. 
And that last supper, he brings his disciples together. And as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, what do we do? We come together, reminding Jesus brought us there together for that. All right, so first we get this understanding. The second thing we must have is a right judgment. Uh, I want to jump on verses 27 through 32 in this, having a right judgment. So they need to make some changes. They needed to eat, take the supper and, and practice the supper as God intended them to. And so in verse uh, 27, it talks about them eating in an unworthy manner. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Now, none of us is worthy to participate in the Lord's Supper. I mean, none of us is worthy. Not in ourselves, we have sinned. We have broken God's law. We've fallen short of his glory. And in fact, there is only one person who can approach God and be the presence of God, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. He alone is worthy to approach God and be in God's presence in that way. But the joy of the supper is that Jesus is the one who invites us to come participate in us. He's made us worthy by his own work. Now, we may not be worthy in taking it, but Christ has made us worthy. But we can eat worthily or eat unworthily. The difference is whether we are eating in accordance with the way that Jesus set up the supper. For the Corinthians, their lack of care for one another was causing them to eat unworthily. And as a consequence, in verse 27, it says that they were guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. They were behaving in a worldly way. Not like Jesus who, who served um, by washing his disciples' feet. Ignoring the needs of the people around him. They were being divisive inside the church. So, and you see how this behavior is not a little thing to the Lord. Notice in verse 29, is that anyone who does these things was eating and drinking judgment to himself. You know, God judges that prejudice, that elitism, that, that, uh, that pride that's there. That's all wickedness before God. If you look at verse 30, it says that even some had gotten sick and even died as a result of the sin. So what should they do instead? Verse 28 tells us, it says, let a person examine himself. In other words, in coming to the Lord's Supper, we consider our lives we consider our faith, we confess our sin ahead of time, and then we come to eat. So let's look at the self-examination. I want to look at three things about self-examination here. Is the first thing when we examine ourselves is we examine our faith in Jesus. We examine our faith in Jesus. You must have faith in Jesus Christ and to renounce your sin to come to the Lord's Supper. That's, that's the entrance requirement and baptism. Baptism, confession of faith, renunciation of sin. You know, apart from faith in Christ, we're condemned inside of our sin. But the Lord's Supper reminds us that Christ loved us, he died for us, and that he saved us. And so as we do the work of self-examination, we need to ask if Jesus Christ is still our hope. We're still hoping to be delivered from sin, or are we resting ourselves in it? Do we see his glory and his all-importance, or have we become self-important? You can imagine this Last Supper. Imagine the Last Supper with Jesus there and the 12 disciples around him. They're eating dinner together, but you have one who is there who is ready to betray him. Jesus calls out the plan, says it's going to happen. But even the one who's going to do it, Judas, he doesn't take that chance to repent. But what does he do? He eats with Jesus, and then he goes out to betray him. He doesn't see the weight of his sin, even though he's confronted with it. Look at uh, Mark 14, verse 17. Mark 14, verse 17, we read this. When it was evening, 
uh, Jesus came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating the Lord's Supper, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him, one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread in the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes, as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. So each one of the disciples says, is it I? You know, the first question they need to ask not is Jesus, though. They need to ask their own hearts. You know, they should know what they're doing with response to Jesus. But even Judas didn't examine himself, not in the way that he should have or could have. And we see the consequences of it when Jesus says, woe to that man. Woe to that man. There may be a part of us that doesn't want to do the work of self-examination and the hard work of repentance, but it is the thing that we need the most. Self-examination and repentance is where spiritual health starts, and then we look to Christ as to be our hope in it. Richard Sibbs, an old uh, writer who wrote this, it were an easy thing to be a Christian if religion stood only in a few outward works and duties, but to take the soul to task and to deal more roundly with our own hearts and to let conscience have its full work and to bring the soul into spiritual subjection unto God, this is not so easy a matter because the soul out of self-love is loath to enter into itself lest it should have other thoughts of itself other than it would have. That's in the sidebars in the bulletin if you want to look at that later. But it's work to do self-examination. It takes time to do self-examination, but that is where spiritual uh, growth takes place as we examine ourselves and replace our sin with our hope in the Lord Jesus Christ as we know of his forgiving grace. We have that gracious and merciful Savior. Would we just believe in him and would we just go to him to see our need to repent of our sin and trust in his grace? So that's the first thing that we see. We examine our hope and our faith in Christ. The second thing in self-examination is uh, to ensure that we are treating our brothers and sisters uh, with respect, our brothers and sisters in Christ, or we're treating them with respect. Remember in verse 22, he calls them out, and he says they're despising the church of God in humiliating those who have nothing. Well, examining ourselves, we need to be judging. Our, you know, we need to see if we're judging ourselves, if we're judging others wrongly. Are we ignoring the needs of others? Maybe we have a spirit of unforgiveness. Maybe there's somebody that we've sinned against that we need to go have reconciliation with. You know, maybe we're living unreconciled lives with others. Notice what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 23. He shows just how important it is when he says, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Do you have a sin inside your life which makes you feel like you're more important than other people? Is there a racism, a classism in your life? Are you ignoring the needs of the body? The call of self-examination is to examine the heart, repent of our sins, make amends where we can, and then to endeavor by the grace of God to do better in obedience to him. So we have to realize that Jesus loves the people around us and that he gave himself for them as well. And we can't have a spirit of superiority inside the body of Christ. There's no place for narcissism inside of the church. 
The third thing that we see in self-examination is to discern the body. We see this in verse 29. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. It's important for anyone who comes to the Lord's Supper to remember that, that that meal represents the Lord Jesus Christ. It reminds us of what he did, what it means. The meal is set apart from other things. It, it requires faith in Jesus Christ. This is the reason why we require profession of faith before someone would come to the Lord's Supper. The person needs to be able to discern the body. They need to see their sin. They need to see that it costs Jesus his life and that that meal is about him. So if you haven't trusted in Jesus Christ, uh, the Lord's Supper is a, is a reminder to you of your need to put your faith in him and to profess faith in him. And it's a glorious thing when somebody looks at the Lord's Supper as being passed around and says, I want a part of that. In fact, many of the great revivals inside of our country started from preparation time for the Lord's Supper. People saying, you know, I want this presence, this, this, this participation in Christ inside of the Lord's Supper. And examination, seeing sin in their lives, they've repented of it and come to Christ. And it is part of the thing which spurred on a number of the revivals inside of our nation. And so it's a great thing when our children see the, 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 the plates go past and, and the bread and the cup go past and they ask when they can have it. You know, it's one of those good teaching opportunities, you know, to remind them of their need to repent of their sin and to believe in Jesus Christ. It's one of those opportunities that we have to talk with them about their need of forgiveness. It's one of the reasons why it's so important to gather together inside of worship. You know, we, we don't celebrate the Lord's Supper alone. It's, it's not a, a sacrament of the family. It's a sacrament of the church. It belongs to the church of Jesus Christ. And one of the dangers that we've had inside this pandemic is that separation away from the Lord's Supper, especially for such a, such a long time. I mean, it's understandable that there are personal dangers to, um, to, to coming out in a, in a time like this, uh, but we need to be careful that we don't unnecessarily starve ourselves away from the means of grace that God has given to us, and even for our children to starve them away from the, the, the gifts that have been given to them. You know, I've, I've heard people say that they were, they were converted because they heard regularly the fencing of the table, the explanation of the Lord's Supper, and, and they realized that they needed to profess faith in Jesus Christ. It was that reminder that was there, caused them to put their faith in Jesus Christ. And even if you can't come for some reason um, because of sickness or, or, or long-term concerns with health, you know, the church can bring it to you. We do um, at times do communion for shut-ins where we invite um, a few of the elders to go uh, with the church and bring it to you if, if there's some health reason that you can't come. But other, other than that, we should be a regular participants inside of that meal. So God's desire is for our salvation, it's, it's for life, and that's why he's given the meal to his people. It's meant to sustain our faith, it's meant to strengthen us, and that's why it's given to us as a regular practice inside of the body of Christ. Part of self-examination also is, is the value of confession. You know, in the Lord's Supper is, is that good time of self-examination. You notice in the bulletin, one week ahead before we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we say next week we're celebrating the Lord's Supper. And that becomes a time of, of our own self-examination of, of, you know, we should always be intentional about it, but just that special intentionality. We're coming to the Lord's Supper this week. Is there something I need to be taking care of? You know, because there's an immense value in confession. There's immense value in taking our sins to the Lord. 
James K. A. Smith wrote this in a book I read recently, um, and it was stunning because he's talking about how a lot of what he calls seeker-sensitive churches, or you know, churches that are really trying to be very attractional and get people to them. You know, they, one of the things they get away give away is the issue of confession, because you know, like, well, we don't want to focus on those negative things. We just want people to feel good. But James K. Smith, and this is in your sidebars, but he asks this question: uh, What if the opportunity to confess is precisely what we long for? I mean, isn't that why we come? To know how God has dealt with our sin and how God has reconciled us to himself and how he's given us life in Jesus? He goes on to say, what if an invitation to confess our sin is actually the answer to our seeking? What if we want to confess our sins and didn't even realize it until given the opportunity? In other words, what if confession is unwittingly the desire of every broken heart? In that case, extending an invitation to confession would be the most sensitive thing we could do, a gift to seeking souls. See, the tragedy of Judas was his refusal to deal with the sin of his life. There he was, right there with the Savior, the sin identified, traveling, um, traveling with Jesus, knowing his love, having his feet washed, and still not able to see the grace and forgiveness that he needed in Jesus Christ, and he could have had in just bringing his sin to the Lord. So we must not be afraid to deal with sin honestly, to speak to God about it, to make amends for it, and to ask for forgiveness. That's because the cost of sin is great, but God gives grace to be restored. It's because he's already paid that price. We see that in the supper, don't we? Well, finally, in verses 33 and 34, we want to talk about our need to have the right attitude. You know, what do they need to correct? They need to correct some of the things which they actually do when they come together on the Lord's, uh, for, for the Lord's Supper. Verses 33 and 34, he tells them to wait for one another and even to eat at home if necessary. The point is, let worship be about worship. Leave the meals for other times. Remember, this is a public event. This is a public worship service. It's not a a private gathering or a picnic, and they need to be considerate of one another during that time. So why wait for one another? They're going to demonstrate that they're one body together. They're one body in Christ. They've all sinned. We've all sinned. Our sins condemn us, but we've been redeemed through faith in Jesus Christ. So we know together there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so in that shared eating, we affirm that shared grace that we have together. The rich and the poor eat together. They both uh, need to see the Lord Jesus Christ. All the nations, they eat together without that separation, seeing the need of Jesus Christ. Now, for the most part, we don't practice the Lord's Supper like they uh, practiced the Lord's Supper back then. We don't have a meal in the middle. It's, it's not required in the scripture. What it's required is the giving of the bread and the giving of the cup. Uh, but we need to remember that in order to take worthy of the Lord's Supper, uh, you know, we come as a body and we need to see the needs of the body of Christ. We, we don't ignore others. We don't become self-focused, but we see the needs of those who are around us. And that's why, if you notice, every time we come to the Lord's Supper, on that Sunday we have that little gold envelope inside for our deacon sharing fund. You know, again, that's a, a focus to point us towards the needs of one another. We may not know the needs of one another as we come in, but there are needs inside the congregation. Over this last year, we've had enormous giving to our deacon sharing fund. You know, just generosity of this congregation uh, through those gold envelopes or whatever. Um, some people giving of their, um, 
the stimulus checks and those things just to help those who are in need. And, and we've had, you know, enormous expenses as well. We've seen people locally, some of our missionaries, people around the world, which we've been able to help through that. You know, that's a working out of this passage. Let's pay attention to the body that's around us. You know, we're here together in this. So it's basic inside of the Lord's Supper to see that we're one in Christ and to ask, are we willing to be associated with different people? Or would we separate ourselves off from them? When we eat, we remember we're part of that historical church. And we remember that we have been welcomed by Jesus Christ. We, we of all people, with all of our sins, with how little we deserve it, he has welcomed us to the table. And that's the point, is to be in the presence of Jesus, to be satisfied with him, and to know the joy of fellowship with him. Will we welcome others in that fellowship? Will we see that we never deserved a place at the table? But we're here by grace. And others have a place by his grace, too. Before I close today, let me just ask you, do you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you received him as your Lord and Savior? You know, we've seen what has been required by the Lord Jesus in this passage today. You know, his death on the cross for the forgiveness of your sin. You know, would you confess and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ that you can have that forgiveness for yourself? Make today to be the day that you'd believe in the Lord Jesus and know the joy of fellowship with him. That's what the Lord's Supper tells us, that you can be saved as you look to him. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your kindness. We thank you for your love. Father, and we just do pray that you'd help us to see what you call us to in being kind and loving and serving others around us. Father, help us not to be blind to the needs of the the people around us, our brothers and sisters in Christ, but to see the places that we can jump in and help and to serve. God, thank you for this wonderful Lord's Supper. We're reminded that though we were sinners, Christ died for us. He gave himself for us that we might have life. And Father, as we come to worship you, even when we come to the Lord's Supper, Father, draw our attention towards you. Father, lift our hearts and our spirits upward, not on ourselves, but on you and what you've done for your people. We thank you, God, for this precious gift of grace, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.